You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. My name is Brad Turner, and I make glass for a living. Brad Turner is a glassblower based in Toronto. Since completing a prestigious residency at the Harbourfront Centre, he has travelled the world, refining his craft, exhibiting at shows, and collecting industry accolades and awards. Recently, his skills were put to the test as a contestant on the hit Netflix series, Blown Away, where he competed against the best glassblowers in the country. Here's my chat with Brad Turner. Who are you, and what do you make for a living? Uh, my name is Brad Turner, and I make glass objects for a living. Okay, so what does glass objects mean? Uh, glass object, you know, I, I do a lot of different things. So in, in some cases, I'll make sculptural uh, artwork, larger scale things. But I also really enjoy designing smaller functional objects that can be, uh, you know, used in in your home or uh, decorative. Or uh, you know, I enjoy the challenge of of sort of creating a, a big spectrum of objects. I think. Well, I've, I've been on your site and I'm seeing things that include lighting. Then you have a whole section of things called balance, which are, are things that are literally half of it is balancing on the other half on, on a pinhead, basically, or on some sort of a point. And are those sort of more, those are more sculptural than they are functional. Is yeah. that right? So you've got lights, yeah, you've got more... sculptures, and then there's other objects as well, I'm saying, which are sort of like a toothbrush holder. And it looks like cognac glasses or stoppers and small small vials and stuff. This is the kind of stuff. So it's a, you run the gamut of, of that which you can make with beautiful colored glass, right? Yeah. So how did you get started doing this? Uh, it's it's a bit of a long story how I got into glass blowing, and, and to be honest, it's usually a long story for most people how they got into glass. I I, I know I have a few friends that they uh, they they knew they wanted to get into glass when they were young, but not not myself. I actually went through uh, kinesiology and phys ed. Uh, at the University of Calgary before, before I got in the arts. I, I, when high school ended, I was at this juncture where I'd go, uh, you know, is it going to be sports, sports or art? Those were the two directions um, or the two things I had in my life. And uh, I kind of rebelled against the family because um, my brothers, both my brothers went through fine arts um, and I rebelled and went into phys ed and uh, kinesiology. And that was fine. I had plans. So, you know, I was thinking I'd be a teacher or a coach, that kind of stuff. And to you know, I I, I well enjoyed sports. I don't think I was really into it. I was I was really young. I don't know that my heart was was totally into it. I was just kind of doing what I thought I was supposed to do. And after I graduated, I kind of you know fiddled around and and worked. But but my brother was a uh, recruiter at the Alberta College of Art and Design uh, at the time, or ACAD. And you know, he'd feed me a bit of information and about the program. And, and so I actually ended up going to ACAD a few years after graduating from kinesiology. And I intended on going to graphic design. So, um, you know, I've always been really good at uh, drawing and illustrating. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go into graphic design. And, and I, I went through those introduction classes. And, you know, I don't think I was that into those either. I was good at it, but. I don't think I enjoyed just sitting and drawing over and over. And I did take glass as an introduction class uh, that first year, um, and that's kind of where I got I got hooked uh, pretty pretty hard. I picked it up pretty quickly, so there was some initial success that kind of reinforced, you know, my enjoyment of it. What made you actually think, you know, hey, of these various electives, I'm going to go and fiddle around with really hot glass? You know, it's just. I, you know, I'd heard about it. I didn't know anything about it. I thought like, oh, I should try this because it's so, I don't know anything about it. It's so foreign. 
uh, you know, nobody really knows anything about glass blowing. It's not something you can just sort of try. I mean, there's a lot of people teaching classes, right? But there, there's nothing like it. There's no other skills that set you up to learn how to to blow glass. It's it's a completely new set of skills. I'm like, I should try this just for fun. Yeah, it's not like you can go to Shoppers Drug Mart, pick up some, you know, construction paper and some scissors, <laughs> and, and oh yeah, I'll pick up a glass yeah. blowing kit as well for my kid. Like it doesn't really work very, that way. No, not <laughs> at all. Maybe ceramics. You know, ceramics on a throwing wheel. It's about as close as you're going to get. Right. And even that, you need the tools. Yeah. So you got in this class, you enjoyed it. Actually, take me through the process. How do you make something that is, is it, that's glass blown? Uh, well, you start with a lot of equipment, for one. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of equipment and a lot of overhead. But, you know, you break down the studio. So there's uh, uh, the, the crucial pieces of equipment. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's a main furnace. And in this main furnace... Uh, there's a big special ceramic pot, and that pot holds uh, like clear liquid molten glass. And that furnace, you know, it runs at about, for some reason, we always use Fahrenheit in Canada, uh, in the Canadian glass blowing season. But, you know, it sits at about 2000 Fahrenheit, which I think is around 1300 Celsius. And it's got this big pot, and that's that's where you keep all your clear glass. You fill it with, you know, depending on the size of your furnace, you have 300 pounds of clear glass, stays liquid. That furnace, you really don't, you don't really don't even turn it off. Like it stays on always. If it does shut off, you can, if you don't do it controlled, you can be in trouble. It'll crack and then, then you got problems if you're a studio owner anyway. And where was I going with this? I think you've lit your studio on fire. That's where we're at. <laughs> don't light your studio on fire. That's the, uh, that's tip uh, number one. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, so yeah, you got this main furnace. Uh, that's got all your clear glass. And the clear glass is kind of like your your blank page. You know, it's like your 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 blank page where you start creating things with. So um, you're gonna need some blow pipes uh, or some uh, punties, which are you know the steel rods, and and you stick the tip of the the blow pipe into the glass, gather it up. So start turning the pipe, gather up some glass on the tip, and you can kind of. Uh, the most analogous version of that would be like taking honey from a from a honey pot because it really does have a, a honey consistency to it. So you turn the rod and you wrap it around the tip and then you come out of the furnace. You try to do that relatively quickly because it is 2200 degrees, 2000 <laughs> degrees. And yeah, then you're then you're out of the out of the furnace and you've got a bit of glass there. And then from there, you have to keep turning like you always have to keep turning the glass or uh, gravity does its thing and pulls it off the pipe. Uh, and, and from there, you know, if you're making something really big, you'll, you'll gather from the main furnace and then you'll come out and you'll cool that down or shape it. Then you'll go back to the furnace and gather more and you slowly build it up larger, uh, kind of like an onion. And when it comes to doing the shaping and, and blowing, you work at a different furnace. Uh, usually you work at a different furnace. Uh, we'll call it the reheat furnace. Uh, the, the most common term is glory hole um so <laughs> I'll leave you can that google alone. that if yeah. you want to. <laughs> it's a family-friendly show come on brad <laughs> but that's that is what it's called so um yeah you're reheating at the glory hole you'll reheat <laughs> yeah, so i'm so happy that i booked this interview <laughs> <laughs> you know when i when i first took the class everyone started laughing and i didn't actually know I'm just incredibly immature. (laughs) (laughs) So you're at the glory hole and you're blowing. Honest to God, this is what you're telling me. And uh, (laughs) oh yeah, there's far more. I don't know what the deal with glass blowers. There's much more. 
Stop, say. Um, so yeah, you reheat at the at the glory hole. You come out. You've got a you know a fixed a short amount of time to to do what you need to do. Shape the glass, blow in it or cool it down, depending how you work. You've got you know thirty seconds, you know twenty seconds, thirty seconds to a minute, uh, and then you go back to the glory hole, reheat it, and you're just taking trips from the from the furnace to the to the bench till you're done. And you're turning the whole time, and you can't really put it pause. You can't just put it away and, and walk away. If it takes three hours to make, you're there for three hours going really? from the bench to the, the glory hole. Yeah. You can, you can give it to someone else. Like if you have an assistant, you can give it to your assistant and see, like, here, just keep this a nice temperature and walk away. But someone is keeping it hot. Is there is there not a machine you could stick it on and have it turn and... I don't know. It really, this is a hand. I mean, you, you do it handmade. I'm assuming there's a machine element that could be done, let's say, in a mass manufacturing plant from a large company, right? Oh, like glasses. Oh, yeah. Glass can easily be made by a machine. You know, all the bottles and jars and that kind of stuff is entirely automated. Um, in terms of handmade glass, you can get molds. You know, you can get molds made that are going to help you shape stuff quite a, a lot quicker and faster for high high volumes. But uh, if it's a entirely one of a kind, one off piece, you know, a, a few people have invented little machines that will will turn a pipe and keep it at sort of a baseline temperature. But that's for very specific uses, and you rarely see it in most studios. Well, I, I'm curious now because I'm looking at the stuff on your site, and I'm thinking of other glass things around my own house and stuff like that. You said you're doing this all with with clear glass with the baseline glass except your stuff has is, is infused with a lot of different color at what point in the process is color introduced and, and what is that actually made of is that dye uh in a in a way it, it is when we use color in glass we we do use glass and glass doesn't combine with a lot of other materials so there are manufacturers out there that make glass color you know i like steel blue is a a glass blowing color, and it's you know they get a rod or shards of glass that is that color because of the minerals combined with it. And also, these companies have you know developed these particular colors to be compatible with most types of glass blowing glass because that's another thing. Uh, not everything is compatible. Glass doesn't like to mix. You know, even if you even if a color is supposed to be compatible, you might spend two hours mix you know a particular red, uh, and if that was a bad batch of red, it's incompatible and it'll be all broken when you take it out of the annealer the next day oh well, literally it'll just shatter as it settles kind of thing yeah uh, the way the glass expands and contracts um, if it doesn't do it properly it'll it'll crack on its own when you're done the piece you're done doing what you want to you still have to cool it down really slowly so you've got another kiln uh, we'll refer to it as a kneeler you break the pipe or break the piece off the the pipe it goes in the annealer and that piece is then going to cool down for about 12 hours. The, the kiln itself actually decreases in temperature over time? Yeah, it'll be programmed to, to decrease down to room temperature. Uh, slower, you know, there's particular ranges in the temperature where it has to go slower. But the main thing is it just cools over a long time. You know, if you make something really thick, you know, really thick stuff can take a week, come down to temperature without cracking. You know, some big casters might take three weeks to a month to cool things down let me ask you, you 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 took your course your first course yeah. and obviously you, you you got you got the bug the glass bug at what point did you realize you were going to do this professionally <laughs> when it sunk in i guess it depends <laughs> when, it, when it sunk in um you know after the first year after the first class you know i had to choose a major 
And, you know, it was, it was a, enough of a decision because, like, you know, my teachers in the graphic design program really wanted me to go into the graphic design program. They're like, hey, you can do glass blowing as a hobby. Um, and then I thought to myself, I'm like, yeah, no, actually, I think I could do graphic design as a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> that, I never took that up as a hobby, but, um, you know, it seemed something, uh, you know, I, I had some skills related to that already. You know, the jury's still out whether or not I took the right path, but uh, we'll we'll see. I think multiple degrees and even more awards. I, I think you probably made a good <laughs> a good decision. Hopefully, once you graduated and you went out into the world, where do you where does a a, a newly minted glass blower, glass turner, go for work? Where was your first stop? That was yeah. After I graduated, that was a, another big decision. Is what what do you do now in Canada? You know, it's a bit more limited. You know, there's not that many of us uh, compared to the the U.S. and that. Um, and there's not that many post-secondary uh, opportunities. Uh, myself, I sort of, I, I knew myself at that point. <laughs> I was older when I graduated than, than the rest of the students. And I, 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 I'd already heard about uh, a residency in Toronto. So this is in Calgary. I heard about the residency in Toronto at the Harbour Front Centre. And I knew of other artists or, you know, at least a couple other artists from that graduated from MACAD and, and did quite well at Harborfront. And knowing myself, I'm like, oh, initially I'm like, oh, maybe I'll take a year off. But then knowing myself, I'm like, a year off's not going to be a good idea. Better <laughs> actually do something. Um, so I did apply to the residency at Harborfront in Toronto and I got that. And uh, that, that was like a true game changer. Um, you know, you come out of your undergrad still relatively novice, especially in terms of glass, but Harborfront uh, was really sort of where I found, you know, my creative voice or vision. And, you know, the artists that I worked with at Harborfront, the other glass artists and the other studios that are there, we, we got along really well. It was really great experience. I learned a lot from, from the other artists and, uh, um, you know, of everything I've done up to this point, I think Harborfront has been the the most significant, uh, most important part of my career development anyway. Um, and that being said, Harborfront is for a lot of Canadian craftspeople and artists. Like, uh, you know, a lot of people see it as kind of a tourist attraction, but in terms of the craft community, it's a huge, huge resource. And is that because of the the people you're meeting, the techniques you're able to get instruction on and get and, and get better at? What sort of what does it give you? You know, you do get that. You sort of you get in to a group of of you know pretty relatively you know like minded, motivated people. But it also it, it allows you freedom and freedom to explore things because it is a residency. So you're not you know not coming out of undergrad and having to spend you know tens of thousands of dollars to build a studio and a few thousand a month to maintain that. Um, you've got financial freedom, you know, besides the fact you have to live in Toronto, <laughs> um, somewhat financial freedom, to put an asterisk by that, to sort of explore directions where you're not, you know, you don't have, you're not making, you don't have to make things that, that sell uh, to pay the bills. I mean, you got to pay the bills somehow, but the bills are significantly less in the residency. And, and I think that anytime you're trying to make something new, no matter what industry you are, the chance to take creative risks is kind of the most important thing you can have. Otherwise, you know, there's no growth, right? If you don't take risks, 
and you have to have resources or some degree of resources to be able to take those risks. Well, as you spent time there and you further developed your craft, your network of folks, once you left, you continued with your actual education. Like you went and got a master's in fine art in glassblowing. Uh, yeah, New York State, uh, there's a university called Alfred University. It's actually, uh, it's not that commonly known, but um, in terms of, it's it's a really renowned ceramics program like you know quite often considered number one in the world for ceramics and pretty high up there for glass as well i mean it's kind of funny because you know uh, before that i was like you know i'll get my master's when i don't know what else to do <laughs> <laughs> my my really my only criteria for my master's was relatively close to toronto just for you know uh family reasons relatively close to toronto and it had to be basically a free ride a full tuition waiver, and that was what Alfred was was offering. You know, they only let two people in the glass program, but if you're in, um, it's uh, a full tuition waiver. So that was kind of the only way I was going to be able to afford uh, a master's program. And what does a master's program do? Uh, you know, a master's program, a lot of a lot of ways. Uh, you know, it's kind of like that uh, the residency at Harborfront, in that you again, you've got uh, some degree of freedom to you know explore your own ideas. To, to make new work, to try to put your practice in a different direction. And then with the master's on top of it, you know, you've got, you know, the school as a resource and the instructors as a resource. It, you know, it plugs me into the, the American scene, um, which is huge. Yeah, it's, it's just another way of developing your work. And, and it'll open up opportunities afterwards, right? If you have your master's, then you can teach post-secondary. You know, I'm always trying to figure out ways which how you know how can I increase my my value to make a living out of this speaking about making a living as a glass turner as a glass blower how, how what does that look like for for me uh, it looks kind of like a bunch of uh, little gigs I got this glass gig going on I got this uh, uh, a university teaching gig <laughs> going on and that's kind of evolved through through various forms uh, you know after my master's you know, my my wife went and did her master's in Europe, and so I had to find a way to to you know go over there and and survive after that. I, I did some residencies, uh, you know, a brief one in Norway, uh, another one in in uh, Belgium. That uh, you know, I was really lucky to have those work out with uh, my wife who was in the Netherlands. Well, now my wife who was in the Netherlands at the time, but then she moved to then she went to Switzerland. And Switzerland's a different story. So I had to go back to Canada. I couldn't stay there. But as I went back to Canada, uh, a job opportunity opened up in Vancouver at uh, Terminal City Glass Co-op, which uh, now is, you know, it's really the, the largest glass co-op in, uh, in Canada. A great, a great facility for, for Vancouver. Um, and a lot of people put a lot of work into developing that. But, but that job came up. And since I got so used to moving around, uh, from Calgary to Toronto to New York State to the Netherlands to the back. I'm like, oh, I'll go to Vancouver, I guess. Um, and, you know, it was only a part-time job, but that was, you know, kind of part of the the gig. It's like, how can I stay in the game? Okay, so I'll, I'll be the studio manager and technician at, at that studio. And that, you know, they didn't pay that well, but it did pay in studio time. And that is, you know, in terms of glass blowing, that's very substantial. Glass blowing can easily easily cost you, you know, $400, $500 a day. So, you know, being paid in studio time, uh, you know, allowed me again to, to continue uh, my creative practice 
on top of building experience as a as a manager and technician, which hopefully I can leverage in other aspects. Well, and I'm curious, when you say it's a co-op, does that mean that basically there are, are numerous different glass blowers that are all, let's say, paying into use a, a setup studio? Is that how it kind of works? Sort of a membership type of thing? You get X number of hours and... Uh, essentially, yeah. Um, it's not a, a co-op as in, you know, say a housing co-op where everyone's paying a fixed amount. But, you know, I, I showed up a year after it was first started. So, you know, how it first began, uh, the the Glass community or members of the Glass community in Vancouver sort of banded together as, long, as well with the best landlord in the world, really favor. If he, uh, if he wasn't there, it would not exist at all. But, uh, you know, they sort of banded their resources together to build this co-op. And the way it works now is, uh, you know, people can apply to be a member of co-op. And as you apply, I think now there's a, an annual fee, but you don't have to you don't have to pay a set monthly amount. But you're a member, you can book studio time at a, at a pretty, a very reasonable rate, especially for Vancouver. Sort of a pay-to-play kind of a thing. Yeah, pretty much. They teach a lot of classes. Uh, you know, classes is a big part of revenue for a lot of glassblowing studios. Because people want to try it. Right. And there's, as we were saying, very limited places one can actually try this. Yeah. Because of the nature of the, of the, of the equipment, of the materials. It's not like this stuff's just lying around. No. So from Vancouver, you wound up back in Toronto. Do you have your own studio now or are you involved in another co-op? I know you're doing some teaching as well. Uh, yeah. Um, the, the longer story is that my wife being a, a jeweler and designer, she got a job at OCAD at, at the Ontario College of Art and Design. University. So when she got that full-time instructor position, that uh, was six months after we had our daughter. So basically that was represented more stability for us as a family. With, with that stability, we made the trip back to Toronto. Uh, my wife really working a lot, trying to, to adapt to the, the her new employment. Um, and then I became a stay-at-home dad for two years. At which point, uh, I was not making anything. My my creative career essentially was put on a long term hiatus, as is very common with most uh, parents, stay at home parents. But uh, now I'm actually, well, the pandemic has changed a lot. <laughs> uh, threw some wrenches in there, as it did for everybody. Uh, I'm actually at a, at a short term residency back at the Harbor Front Center because they do offer short term residencies to alumni. And that has been, uh, to the extent that I'm able to take advantage of it, it's, it's really great. But, um, you know, as, uh, with a child, it's really changed uh, my ability <laughs> to get to the studio. And then the pandemic has really restricted access uh, quite a bit. So I don't necessarily know what my creative career will look like after the pandemic's over. What does that do to have your creative career uh, put on hold? partially by choice, partially by circumstance. Because a lot of people who are involved in creative endeavors, if they're unavailable, whether it's for family reasons, for personal reasons, uh, simply by choice, taking a vacation for that matter, if you're not working, you're not making. And I'm curious, what does that feel like to be somebody who's always made stuff for years and years and years, and then to have this time where you're not making? It's complicated. Uh, you know, it can, it, there's a part of it is really frustrating to, you know, to kind of, try to put that part of myself away or to the side or, you know, even to accept the fact um, that I'm not going to be able to fully take advantage of, of certain opportunities. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, creatively, uh, I, I tend to really rely on momentum, uh, you know, generating new ideas, 
it kind of snowballs for me. And then you stop, you lose a lot of momentum. Um, and then it's, you know, with anything, right, you lose momentum. It's hard to, uh, it takes a lot of discipline to, to get going again. And it's not terribly easy. The tough part is that opportunities still arise. Um, and I don't know how to respond to them. Be like, I actually don't know. Like, I don't know if you know, like I've got this TV show coming. I've got a reality TV show coming up. No, what's uh, this? I, I kind of thought... Oh yeah, <laughs> this part. I kind of thought maybe that was why you contacted me. Um, so I don't know if you know, uh, Blown Away. It's a, a glass blowing reality TV show on Netflix. Yeah, are you on, are you going to be like, on that? I'm on that. Yeah, it premieres this Friday. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! <laughs> it premieres in two days. This is this is the problem when you're your own researcher and you don't you don't do enough research. I just saw your stuff and thought, boy, that's nice stuff. I'm going to call this guy. That's it. That's my research. It goes to show uh, how good my promotion is. <laughs> well, well, okay. So tell me about this. So you're you're going to be on a show. I mean, you're going to be on on Netflix. Everyone's watching Netflix. I know this is a show that has done well. This is not the first season of the show, right? Yeah, I'm on season two. We we filmed uh, season two was in February. It was February right before everything uh, shut down. Right before, so um, yeah, it, it, I almost didn't do. I was almost. I, mean, I think I almost made the list on season one. Uh, but then I'm like, okay, I'm going to apply again for season two. And then I got in and they offered to me it. And I'm like, oh, oh God. But <laughs> <laughs> I do it. And, you know, just partly being nervous, but also. I was going to say, um, you said you were nervous to be on this. This is a podcast with a guy in a basement. Come on. You were on, you're on TV in next week. Yeah. That's I what you should know. be nervous about. <laughs> I know. But yeah, it was a big decision at the time because, you know, I was, uh, I was, uh, you know, I just sort of started uh, working again, uh, another job. So I'm like, okay, you know, they're like, okay, you have to be unavailable to the world for at least six weeks because uh, you get sequestered in a hotel. And I'm like, okay, well, how, my wife is oh, totally overburdened with work. So we got to figure out how I can leave for six weeks and, you know, arrange daycares, uh, people picking up our daughter from daycare and uh, taking care of her on weekends. And I'm not allowed to tell anybody why. Oh, yes. Yeah, so you, you, you weren't even allowed to explain why you were off the grid. Yeah, I can't tell people. I'm like, oh, I got to go for one to six weeks. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we figured it out and we filmed it. And then I came back and the world shut down. <laughs> and uh, fast forward, it, uh, yeah, it premieres on Friday. And I'm really curious to see what dumb things I said. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, if experience has taught me anything, reality shows never, ever make the contestants look stupid. <laughs> uh, let me ask you something, because you're about to have, obviously, some of the biggest promotion that you've ever had. You are going to be beamed into everybody's living rooms. And I'm kind of curious, are you going to be promoting the show? Are there ways that you're looking to capitalize on this opportunity? Uh, you know, with the time I have, I'm, I'm doing my best. Uh, I'm not... You know, I'm I'm trying to participate on Instagram, and you know the showrunners they're they're doing their their part. You know, obviously they're doing a lot of promotion on their own and feeding me materials. Uh, this is a part of the press tour this week. I've got a few <laughs> interviews this week, and you know I'm just trying to. Main thing is I'm trying to stay active and and participate in social media to some degree. Uh, you know, largely Instagram. Obviously, it's not my training, but I'm trying and trying to at least post interesting things. I, I don't I don't actually, you know, talk about myself too much where I just need to like throw out, post every single activity and thought I do. 
I probably, I probably you're not 12. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have yet to post a selfie. So, Hey, new frontier. Just wait. <laughs> you, you're going to go you do duck face. It'll be great. <laughs> so as somebody that is, that is doing their best with uh, social media, what other ways do you sell your work and what other ways do you market it? You know, I, I guess what, uh, what I do, you know, I look for opportunities. Basically, I try not to turn down the opportunities that come up. So, you know, uh, blown away, you know, that was an opportunity. And I, and I know, you know, obviously waiting, it would be huge. But just being on the show is a big opportunity. So I try not to, as much as possible, try not to turn down those kind of things. Does that include commissions? And before the pandemic, were you doing markets and stuff occasionally as well? Uh, you know, a little bit in Vancouver, uh, you know, in Toronto, I would do, you know, like the outdoor show. That's a big one, uh, as well. You know, when you're at Harbor front, you sort of, um, get connected and lined up with these things pretty quickly. Um, there's always, uh, Ontario craft or the, uh, formerly Ontario craft council. Now, now it's called craft Ontario, which, uh, promotes, uh, Ontario and Canadian craft artists. There's my website, and I'll sell smaller stuff, uh, smaller items, uh, affordable with quotations on uh, Etsy. Um, you know, Etsy's got its own promotional tools. And, and you know, I was lucky, you know, say like the toothbrush holders, you know, got picked up on some design blogs, and that kind of circulates on their own. Ideally, I would just pay someone <laughs> to do it all <laughs> for me, but, uh, you know, not in that position at the moment, so... Uh, you know, and some of it's just luck, right? Like, I don't think people give enough credit to just simple luck. When I hear, hear a successful person talk about luck, it always makes me think of something that my mother said to me because I was a mediocre, aggressively mediocre student. You know, I was a solid B plus, but I couldn't be bothered to do the work for A's and A pluses. Yeah, and yeah. my mom once said to me, she said, you know, what did this other kid in my class, you know, what did he get on the, on the test? Because I got a B plus. And she, I said, he got an A plus. And she says, so why do you think he got an A plus? And I said, well, I don't know. He's really lucky. And she goes, you would be surprised how hard he works to be lucky. Yeah. And I always thought, oh, yeah, she got in a good one there. And it's always stuck <laughs> with me. You know, I mean, the truth is, is that, you know, lucky people are lucky because they're working all the time. I mean, it means that they're, right. they're ready to take advantage of the opportunities that, that come up or come their way. Yeah. Yeah, I, do, I agree to that to a certain point. I think some of those opportunities are luck, but... Um, it is up to someone to take advantage of those opportunities. All right. So tell me, what, what sort of advice might you have for somebody who wants to get into the glass blowing game? The first thing, I guess, would be, you know, just try it and see if you, you like it. You know, if the pandemic wasn't happening, you could take weekend classes at Harborfront or various studios around. So, you know, if you want to dip your uh, feet, not literally into the glass, then you can do that. And that'll give you an idea of, of whether you like it. You know, there are people, you know, some people, you know, when I've taught the intro classes, a lot of people will sort of romanticize what it is and not realize actually how hard it is. You know, they're like, oh, I'm gonna, I want to make these, uh, you know, really nice wine glasses in my intro class. I'm like, well, do you have like eight years? <laughs> <laughs> in eight years, you'll have a decent it's kind class. of. That's how long it, it takes. Because, uh, you know, I've made a lot of, you know, I work with a lot of materials. I, you know, I'm not a, a furniture make, but you know, I don't make out of wood and I understand those materials. And, and I will say like technically glass is the hardest thing you can work with other than probably nanotubules or something. <laughs> I don't know, but it's, it's up there. It's up there as far as handmade thing goes. Uh, so that's the main thing, you know, make sure, make sure you like it. 
um, and make sure you really like it because uh, aspects of the life can be very, very difficult. You know, have to be comfortable with a, a certain degree of instability. Um, you have to be comfortable with a lot, a lot of failure. You have to be comfortable with breaking a lot of stuff because um, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't do that, it's it's going to be an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> everything you make is precious because you're going to break a lot of it and you have to break a lot of it to get better. So. I have to ask you something before we wrap things up. In a world where so many things are mass manufactured, where the making of glass is like the making of much clothing and, and most housewares and things like that, where it's done large scale, it's done fast, it's done by machines in large factories and shipped everywhere. What is it about doing it yourself, doing it handmade? Why be a glass artisan when there's so much stuff that's available? You know, for, for myself, there, there's a bunch of reasons why be a glass artist. Um, you know, sometimes it's as simple as uh, I'm good at it. You know, I, I, I picked it up pretty quickly. Uh, I, I'd like to think I've got a fairly unique uh, vision or, or perspective on the, the material. And, you know, it could be simple as, you know, thinking like that's what I have to contribute to the world and i sort of see a responsibility you know especially you know if you're in the arts and crafts you know it's kind of a luxury to be able to do this and i feel like that something that comes with that luxury is is to try and contribute at least you know matter how small but you know just contribute something new to the the world of materials and all the objects are out there um i feel like as long as i can contribute something new or some new gesture to it that's that's something that's what i can contribute to the world like i don't you know if i get into a, a situation where i'm just replicating other people's designs like i don't want to be a part of that it could you know that could be a route to making a lot of money you know like half the time you know majority of the time when people you know i get approached about a commission it's usually just to knock off something more expensive uh that people think i can do it for cheaper and uh i'm you know i'm not really interested in those but uh there's so many people making stuff. There's so much different stuff being made. Some of it excellent. A lot of it really mediocre. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm asked this, you know, quite regularly, which is why bother? In other words, why do you need to be the one to take that picture or conduct that interview or uh, create that show or anything when there's so much out there that's coming at us and available to us at all times? And much to your point, it's because it's my perspective. That's what I'm bringing to it. It's my drive. It's what I'm here to contribute. And uh, yeah. in this case, help other people to contribute as well. And so it's, it's an answer that makes a lot of sense. So no, I absolutely relate to what you're talking about when you say, this is what I have to contribute. This is my perspective yeah. and what I bring to it. Because at the end of the yeah. day, there's lots of people who make glass, but there's only one person who makes glass the way you do. Right. <laughs> Thank you. I hope so. <laughs> I don't know. So where can people find out a little bit more about you, Brad? Uh, well, you can find out more about me on my website at uh, com. That has the basics. I'm uh, on Instagram at GlassTurner and uh, on Friday on Netflix. Well, good luck. I'll be watching for sure. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing with us how you make a living. All right. Thanks, Robbie. Subscribe to Making a Living Show on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more on the show, visit makingalivingshow.com and follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.